0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So today's show is going to be a little bit different. It's just going to be a solo show today, and we're going to be talking about the Rwanda genocide, but we're not going to be talking about it in the way that it's usually talked about. We're not going to focus so much on the actual events. Those have been very well documented. There are lots of good books about it. Uh, They're all very harrowing to read. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about what happened before and what happened during, but especially what happened after as well. And the reason that I'm doing this podcast today is that there's this sense in, I don't like the word West, but it's just so easy as opposed to saying something like the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and most of Western Europe and a handful of other countries um so we'll just say the west even with all of the various problems associated with that word uh there's a sense in in western countries that Rwanda stands for something that it stands for this clarion call that that we need to intervene to stop evil from happening and never again and all of this stuff and i want to try to make the case in the course of this podcast that it's a, it's almost exactly the opposite that it's actually a cautionary tale of intervention gone wrong and all of the various different ways that intervention can go wrong. Before, during, and after the Rwanda genocide, there was loads of intervention. Humanitarian, military, political, Western powers, the United Nations, regional actors. And nearly all of it made the situation worse, not better. And in fact, nearly everything that the international community, whatever, again, that term means, tried to do, a certain actor in this particular conflict did better and quicker. And we're going to talk about that as well. The other case that I want to make about Rwanda is that it's not, we shouldn't say things like, this could be another Rwanda whenever a a serious humanitarian situation develops or political crisis. Because there was only ever going to be one Rwanda. It's a sui generis case. It's unique. The characters in it, the history behind it, the particular colonial history, the particular uh, ethnic makeup, the particular motivations of these actors at this moment in history and the particular reaction of, of international actors to this moment uh, were, were not something that we're going to see again in quite that configuration. Uh, and Rwanda had elements to it, that and particularly one element that I'm going to stress over and over again, that no other event could have or will have And so, uh, on the one hand, I I want it to be a cautionary tale for future interventions. (laughs) But on the other hand, I want it to be sui generis so that we shouldn't even apply it to potential future interventions. Which sounds contradictory, but I'm going to try and make both cases at once during the course of this podcast. Now, this is my first solo cast, so uh, I would love feedback. If you like what what you're hearing today, uh, please let me know. If you don't like what you're hearing, please let me know, because uh, otherwise I I won't... uh, I won't bother to disturb this feed with solo casts. But for some reason, uh, none of my friends wanted to talk about Rwanda for an indeterminate length of time. I can't imagine why. So here we go. Part one of this is going to be kind of a brief exploration of the groundwork that was laid for the genocide and why it happened the way it did. And I feel like the best way to tell this is through this, the remarkable story of a man named Paul Kagame. Now, for those who don't know, Paul Kagame is currently the president of Rwanda. He's been the president of Rwanda since, I think, 2000, but he's effectively been running the country since 1994, since the end of the genocide. Paul Kagame was a Rwandan Tutsi refugee who grew up in— he was born in Rwanda in 1957, but he didn't stay there for long. In 1960, there was this upheaval, and he and, and uh, many of his, his people, uh, the Tutsis, had to flee the country, they went to Uganda in huge numbers and spent decades there. Now, a little bit of background about the the ethnic breakup of, of Rwanda and, and Burundi and some of the neighboring countries. There's uh, There's a lot of groups, but in Rwanda and Burundi, it kind of breaks down into two major ethnic groups. You've got the Hutus and the Tutsis. And this is not a normal case of the A's and the B's, if you will. Uh, the Hutus are about 85% of the population, and the Tutsis are about 15%. It's a similar breakdown in Burundi, uh, which is Rwanda's neighbor to the south, which is of similar ethnic composition and, uh, and similar size. These are both two very small countries in what's referred to as the Great Lakes region of Africa. Now, the Hutus and the Tutsis have uh, sort of different histories, and it's really complicated, and you have to be kind of reductive when talking about this, otherwise you can talk about it all day. The Tutsis have, uh, at least in recent history, been sort of the the dominant group. They've generally uh, been more economically well-off, and under the colonial period, first under the Germans, and then under the Belgians, after the Germans had to cede Rwanda and Burundi to Belgium after losing World War I... um, the Tutsis were sort of favored. Uh, This is a common colonial practice, which was to sort of pick a a minority group and favor them so that they would become loyal to the colonial master and help the colonizer rule the country because usually most, most countries did not willingly submit to colonial rule. Uh, And so to, to pick a minority group like this and to favor them uh, was, was a a clever divide and rule tactic. And, And the Belgians did this and the Germans did this. So, the Tutsis were are generally better off, and it's not as simple as there's one group and there's another group. There's loads of, of intermarriage, and and you can you can kind of graduate, if you will, from being Hutu to being Tutsi if you acquire enough economic and or or, or social power. And uh, so there's all kinds of power dynamics between the two. It's not as simple as one ethnic group and another ethnic group, but there are these sort of stereotypical physical differences between them, which are sort of uncomfortable to talk about. The Belgians uh, in particular favored the Tutsis because the stereotypical Tutsi looks more quote unquote European, generally taller, narrower gaunter face, physical features, um, and just a, a more sort of stereotypically European look or, or so it was said, uh, if you look at Paul Kagame, for example, he is a, a sort of classic tootsie looking dude. He's extremely tall. He's extremely skinny. He wears $15,000 suits and they don't fit him because it's impossible for a suit to fit a man of his dimensions. Um, Hutus are generally sort of shorter, stockier stereotypically here. Um, uh, Almost everyone in Rwanda is a smallholder farmer, but but uh, Hutus are generally thought of as being smallholder farmers, Tutsis as being descended from pastoralists. Blah blah blah. There's this whole backstory, but uh, but basically, until this about 1959 1960, whether under a Tutsi monarchy or under a colonial s- situation that favored them. Tutsis kind of had the run of Rwanda, and they were the dominant ethnic group, and and they had disproportionate economic and political power. And then in 1959 through 61, and particularly 1960, there's this revolution, and huge numbers of Tutsis are basically forced out of the country. The Hutus take over the country, and this large diaspora develops in Uganda. And Paul Kagame and a lot of the other leaders of what would eventually become the Rwandan patriotic forces. We'll talk about them in a minute. All fled. And these guys were basically refugees and they and their families had to start anew in Southern Uganda and try to make do. Now, one thing about Tutsis is that they're minority, not just in Rwanda and Burundi, but in several of the neighboring countries as well. And again, kind of uncomfortable to talk about these sorts of things, but they're, they're sometimes referred to as the Jews of Africa. They're generally perceived as being disproportionately successful and kind of universally hated uh there's citizenship issues of whether they are citizens of this country or that country uh pertaining to tutsis almost everywhere they go and uh, they're, they're just they suffer a lot of discrimination and they tend to sort of punch above their weight in great lakes region affairs as we shall see so in the end, uh, something like 330, 340,000 Rwandan, mostly Tutsis, flee this revolution. And the, a large portion of the political establishment is basically forced out of the country. And they set up shop in Uganda and become in, involved in Uganda's complex politics, which we won't necessarily go into here. But Paul Kagame grows up as, as a refugee in Uganda. And a lot of these Tutsis found that the best path forward for them was to join the Ugandan army or various rebel groups that fought uh, against, you know, Idi Amin's regime and then subsequent regimes. And Paul Kagame was one of these, but it's not always easy. As in many countries, the Tutsis faced discrimination in Uganda. There were questions about whether they would, would even be citizens, this sort of thing. And they faced persecution in particular from Uh, A man named Milton Obote, who was the leader of Uganda in the early 1980s. So Kagame and several hundred other Tutsis wind up joining a rebel army that seeks to overthrow Obote. And Kagame links up with this rebel army who's led by a man named Yaori Museveni. And in 1987, with the help of Kagame, with the help of these Tutsis, Museveni seizes power in Uganda. He takes Kampala, the capital, and... Kagame and some of his compatriots become senior military officers for Museveni. So now Museveni's is in power, but because Tutsis face discrimination and because so many of them are in his senior leadership, he starts facing criticism. He faces criticism from uh, Rwanda's president across the border. He faces criticism at home. And so he demotes Paul Kagame uh, and in particular another man who we're going to talk about named Fred Rigbyamea. Uh, whose name I'm probably butchering. Uh, It's really hard to pronounce. It's spelled R-W-I-G-Y-E-M-A. At least that's how it's generally spelled. So Rigyama is the best I can do. I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, he and Kagami get demoted. And as a result, they start to reevaluate their life in in Uganda and whether or not they still have uh, they and their, you know, their families and the people that they're closest to uh, still have a future there. And so in the late 1980s, 1989, 1990, they start to plan an invasion of Rwanda to return home and take the country back. They've been gone now since 1960, basically. And it's been about thirty years that they've been refugees, and now they have all of this military training. They, in fact, Kagame trains with the United States military, and uh, they think they can actually win. And so they come up with this amazing scheme that you just wouldn't believe. It just, it just sounds far fetched, but, but they, but they actually do it. Here's what they do: in 1990. There's a, an official military parade celebration in Uganda all over Uganda and a bunch of different towns and villages in Kampala, the capital. And the Rwanda the 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 sort of ex Rwandan Tutsis who are increasingly feeling unwelcome in Uganda. They decide they're going to parade with the military, but they're going to set themselves up so that most of them are located on the border or towns near the border of Rwanda. There's an extensive border between Rwanda and Uganda to the extent that Rwanda has any extensive borders because it's really, really small. It's like the size of Maryland. So they set themselves up. It's October 1st, 1990. And they call themselves the Rwandan Patriotic Front RPF, so uh, hereafter referred to as the RPF. So again, remember RPF means Rwandan Tutsis who have been in exile for the most part in Uganda and uh, so they set themselves up so that they're they're parading down uh, you know the central streets of of towns all across southern Uganda and at the the end of the parade, they just keep marching and they march into Rwanda and they invade. This is October 1st, 1990. And this sets off the war between the RPF and the Rwandan government, which is, is run by, by Hutus and the president of whom is, is Habyarimana Juvenal. Again, a name I might very well be saying completely wrong. So at this point, Paul Kagame is actually the number three guy in the RPF. The number 1 guy is Fred Rwegema. The number 2 guy who we haven't mentioned uh up until this point is is named Peter Byingana and uh, we haven't mentioned him for a reason. So, he only has a very small part to play in this. On the second day of this conflict, Rwegema is shot dead. Now, it's disputed as to the circumstances. Th- its general, the, the official account is that he was hit by a stray bullet in the, in the course of the fighting. But there's another version of this story, uh, which is mentioned in one of the books by Gerard Prunier about this conflict, uh, who's a, a historian who has covered it extensively. And in this version, uh, in, on the second day of the conflict, Rigima and uh, Bayangana get into a heated argument over tactics, during which Bayangana shoots in the head, thus doubly incapacitating the, uh, the RPF leadership. And the RPF falls into complete disarray. Its forces flee across the border, not back into Uganda, where they're not particularly welcome anymore, but rather into Eastern Congo. And the thing about Eastern Congo, at this time, it's, it's referred to as Zaire. The thing about Zaire is Zaire is the place that people go when they are, when they need to flee, and this happens over and over and over again, you'll see this as a recurring theme. When, when, whether it's if you're in the Great Lakes region and you're a rebel group or whatever, and and you're in bad shape and you need to flee to a place that is ungoverned to regroup, this is where you go. You go into the in, into Ituri, into the the Kivus, into the eastern region, the northeastern region of. Uh, what was then referred to as Zaire and what is today the Democratic Republic of Congo. If you look at a map of DRC, you can see why this might be the case. The capital, it's a huge country. And the capital is basically on the other side of the country. It's Kinshasa, and it's it's in the far west of the country, Um in the east the writ of the government doesn't has never really applied to the same extent that it doesn't in, in other parts of the country and there's a lot of natural resources and there's not a lot of governance so the RPF flees into this region disorganized and and seemingly defeated it things are not it's it's, early, it's late 1990 and things are not going well kagame at this point is actually in the united states getting military training And he realizes that this is the pivotal moment for the RPF. And and if he's ever going to achieve his dream of of returning to Rwanda, he has to act now. So he in an incredibly ballsy move, and this is a recurring thing about Kagame, he flies to Kampala, where again, he's not exactly welcome. And in theory, he should probably be arrested because he just took a bunch of military officers and invaded a neighboring country as a rebel army. But he has a lot of connections in the intelligence service because he's actually head of military intelligence under Museveni for a while. And so he gets a couple of his friends in the intelligence services to spirit him to the border. Not the Rwandan border, but the border of eastern, what is then Zaire. And in a remarkable feat, he, in a matter of months, reorganizes the RPF, gets this demoralized, disheveled group of, of officers together, recruits a bunch of Tutsis who have who have been ill-treated uh, in Zaire to join the RPF, and fashions them into this disciplined, powerful fighting force, and then re-invades Rwanda. Now this is closer to ninety-two, ninety-three, and the battle immediately begins to tip the other way. By 1993, it, it's clear that the RPF is going to win. They're better organized, they're better led, they're better trained, and they're winning. And they're, they're a few weeks from cap- capturing the capital of, uh, of Kigali, and Kagame is, is having his way in this war. This is where the international community gets involved. Remember how I said before, during, and after the genocide, there was loads of international intervention and all of it made the situation worse? It begins right here. Now, the first thing that happens is the French intervene politically, kind of militarily, to basically stop the RPF from winning. They have their reasons for doing this. The main one is that after the Belgians left in 1960, because... Rwanda was a a French-speaking colony. Rwanda kind of falls under the purview in, in the French view of Le monde de Francophonie, the French-speaking world. And so they have a lot of influence with the existing government that is run by the Hutus. And they don't want to see this force from a former British colony. Uh, invade because they don't know if they're going to be as close to these new guys. And so they intervene to basically stop the RPF from from winning the war outright. And there's a peace accord, and there's going to be a UN peacekeeping force. Again, this is 1993. And the, the, the parties get this thing called the Arusha Accords kind of foisted on them. Now I'm a conflict management guy and one of the rule, one of the general rules about conflict management is that it's not a good time to introduce a peace deal when one side is kicking the crap out of the other side, because one side's negotiating from a position of strength. They can ask for anything they want and they're not really in the mood to talk peace because they might just be able to win outright. Whereas the other side is, is in an extremely vulnerable position and, uh, you see this in the Arusha Accords. It's a deal that was kind of transplanted from a previous peace deal that had worked well in Mozambique and it just doesn't quite work in Rwanda. The dynamics are different. And the RPF can basically ask for whatever they want. They say, okay, even though we're a small group, we want X percentage of, of military positions or X percentage of government positions. And they get it because they can. Um because if not, they, they, they can go back to war and basically win. And then they say, okay, these, these Hutu hardliners who are really anti-Tutsi, we don't like them. We don't want them in the government at all. And they get that too. And a lot of those Hutus wind up being the guys who organized the genocide. So now you have a very unstable peace deal that's been kind of foisted on the parties when the parties didn't really want it. You've had the French getting involved to basically stop what would have happened anyway from happening. You have a lot of really pissed off Hutu hardliners who have just been basically excluded from the government because they were losing and and they were not in a position to bargain at, at the Arusha talks. And now you're going to have a peacekeeping force by the United Nations that is going to enforce this peace deal. And that peacekeeping force is is ably and nobly led by a man named Romeo Dallaire, a Canadian military officer. And they're going to try and control this situation, which is very volatile, but they are going to do this without much of a mandate from the international community because several countries don't really want to contribute a lot to this. And the United States in particular is very loath to get involved because of an incident that had happened fairly recently. The United States is still reeling from the infamous Black Hawk Down incident uh, as part of the Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia, which had happened earlier in 1993. And the United States does not want to authorize UN peacekeeping missions that have this mandate to protect civilians. And then when everything goes to hell, the United States, because it's so much more military power, this is 1993, the Cold War is over, the United States is the unquestioned military superpower. And the United States does not, the Clinton administration does not want the United States to be basically cleaning up the UN's mess, as the US tried to do in Somalia in 1991, where everything was falling apart, and the U.S. intervened to, uh, on basically a humanitarian mission and got involved in this hideous internal collapse of a country. The United States doesn't want to do this again. The Clinton administration is really loath to send American soldiers off to die to do this sort of thing, and a lot of European countries likewise. And uh, so this, this peacekeeping force, almost from the get-go, does not get the kind of political support that it needs so why why am i sort of going over this history i feel like there are three major reasons why an international intervention can screw up and all of them are really on display before during and after the genocide in rwanda one is that the the international party or parties doesn't care enough to actually enforce its writ or enforce its will say okay we're going to go in and protect civilians but since we don't really care we're not really politically invested in this we don't care as much as the parties do so when push comes to shove we're not going to back up our word we're not going to commit the kind of resources and sacrifice the blood and treasure that is needed to actually make what we want to have happen actually happen So outside parties, in effect, just don't care as much as people who actually live there. The second problem is when an international actor is too interested. Not that they, oh, they care so much that they wind up making mistakes, although that happens too, but that they have too much of a political interest, which may or may not correspond with actually doing the right thing. And we're about to see this in spades with the French once the actual genocide breaks out. And the third problem is when the international intervention is is incompetent. If it, it it's intended to do something but it doesn't wind up working. So in the, in the lead up to the genocide, you see the French intervening because they're politically interested. You see the international community authorize a peacekeeping force but not give it the kind of political and military support it needs to actually do its job because they don't care enough. And you see the attempt to foist a peacekeeping deal on a situation, but that, peacekeeping deal is, that, that peace deal is ill-conceived. It doesn't make sense for the, the situation as it stands at the moment. Now, on April 6th, 1994, the airplane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi gets shot down. In my experience... Who shot it down depends on what your, your mother tongue and or uh, co- post-colonial language of choice is. If you are from an English-speaking country or a country that was, was a, a British colony or whatever, where, where English is the, 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 the sort of international language. Hutu nationalists who wanted to, who had been planning the genocide and were determined to carry it out, did this and then tried to blame it on the Tutsi army, the RPF, in order to justify launching the genocide. If you are from a French speaking country, (laughs) you think that it was all Kagame's fault. And that he did this so that he could justify taking over the country. This is remarkably universal. <laughs> I see this over and over again. Like even like French Canadian journalists who I talked to are like, oh no, it was totally the RPF who did it. Um, but uh, I, I'm American. So uh, I'm just going to say it was the, the Hutu genocide heirs, Almost certainly who, who did this. Um, because, you know, that's what I was taught because I'm an American. So, uh, this plane gets shot down and immediately this mass killing that has been clearly planned in advance and that the UN peacekeeping force knew was coming and kept warning the UN security council to no avail was, was, was going to happen, uh, gets underway. Now the actual genocide has been documented in in detail, but the part that people forget is that it was over in a hundred days. 800,000 people, by by most accounts, some people say more, uh, mostly Tutsis, but also moderate Hutus, uh, loads of other folks, uh, were just massacred, mostly with machetes. It was one of the most brutal acts of the 20th century. And it ended because the RPF won the war. They slowly and methodically took over the whole country through the guys who were doing the genocide genocide out of the country. And and they all fled into Eastern. What what was then Zaire and what is today DRC? Because again, that's where people flee when they've lost. And uh, some of them are still there. Paul Kagame ended the Rwandan genocide. Now Paul Kagame is a very complicated man. There's a reason I started this story with him. He's, he's one of these people where he's, he's not a good man. He's a great man the fates of multiple African countries, an entire region would be utterly different without him. It's difficult to imagine anyone else having the military acumen and the the leadership abilities to rally the RPF in 1990 after Ragema is shot and after they flee and disorganized into Eastern Congo. It's difficult to imagine somebody basically taking on, uh, as we will see, not just the Rwandans, but an international force and winning. It's difficult to imagine anyone else doing all the stuff that Kagami did after the genocide as well, uh, both good and bad. He really changed this region forever, and he fundamentally changed Rwanda. Now, if you could have said, like, like think about another, th- think about something, you know, the 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 next case that where people said, oh no, this is another Rwanda happening. Think about Darfur in two thousand five, two thousand six. Imagine that a, a force could come in and liberate all of the people there and and throw out the the Janjuid who were burning villages and doing just horrible crimes against humanity. Uh, and seize control of the area, unify it, and and set up a competent governance of it in 100 days. We would call that a success. That's what Kagame did. It's very. There aren't a lot of people who could have done this. It's one of the reasons why Rwanda is sui generis. There just isn't usually a Paul Kagame. There, there just isn't somebody like that. And just the stuff that he's going to do after the genocide, you just can't believe it but we'll get there we'll get there a little later on now at this point you could a lot of people say well if only the un peacekeeping force had had the international backing then it could have stopped the genocide before it ever happened that's possible but that's one of the problems with international actors a lot of times they don't care enough but the hutu genocidaires they cared a lot they were they were mortally afraid of the rpf and the RPF, they cared a lot. They've were they they've spent their whole lives in exile, and they've got nowhere else to go. They can't go back to Uganda. They, they don't want to go back to Eastern Congo. It's really, I mean, it's important to sort of see the fear that all of the sides in this conflict had and how existential it was for them. If the RPF doesn't effectively take control of Rwanda... They've got nowhere to go. But if you're part of this Hutu power movement, you look at the Tutsis with a a fair amount of historical discrimination, but not only that, you view them as a fundamental threat. These guys are whooping you on the battlefield, and they could very easily take back the country and then... It could revert to a, a time where where Hutus were sort of subservient and Tutsis controlled most of the land, most of the resources, all the political power, the state. It, 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 was a, it used to be a Tutsi monarchy. It used to be a colony that, where, where, where Tutsis were favored. <laughs> that's terrifying to you 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 had a revolution in 1960 to 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 stop this there was there was another bout of terrible killings in both rwanda and burundi in the early 1970s you are absolutely afraid that these guys are going to come back and take the country and in fact one of the major you know people wonder how was it that so many people were were convinced to kill their 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 friends their neighbors their family sometimes even just because they were they were tutsi's and, and you know the, the entire population or much of it was mobilized to do this one of the reasons was that that Rwandan hutu power used radio as a means to communicate to people that the 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 tutsi's were coming to take their land and as i said almost everyone in rwanda is a smallholder farmer so that's the most terror that's all you've got. your your little plot of land is all you've got. and and the idea that these foreigners who have been gone for thirty years are going to come back and and take your land away from you. And Rwanda is a very densely populated country. At the time there were seven million people there. And again, it's very small it's the size of Maryland. So the idea that these these foreigners are going to come in, this other group is going to come in and take your land is, is powerful stuff, and that's one of the reasons why people were so so eagerly uh, jumped into the fray and started macheteing their neighbors to death. Now, the more complicated sort of social psychology reasons, I'll leave that to, to the experts, but uh, it's just important to see that both sides were really, really deeply afraid. It would have been, and they cared a lot about the outcome here, and it would have been difficult for the international community to match that. But let's say that, okay, so the UN can't really effectively put a stop to this. Romeo Dallaire's peacekeeping force tries gallantly, but they are outmanned uh, after several peacekeepers are, are are killed and butchered by Hutu nationalists. Uh, I think it was the the Belgians pulled all of their peacekeepers out. So the mission was was left shorthanded even by the standards of of, of what it had been before, where it didn't have the, the, the material to fulfill its mandate. But uh, but now you you have a shorthanded peacekeeping force gallantly trying to save as many people as they can, but but hundreds of thousands of people are being slaughtered all around them. And wouldn't it be nice if a A unified command from a Western, powerful military came in and restored order. Doesn't that sound like something that would be really nice? So, here's the problem. The thing that everyone doesn't talk about in Rwanda is that that happened. A major Western power conducted a military humanitarian intervention to protect civilians during the middle of the genocide. That sounds great, right? Well, here's the problem. Remember how I said that there are three types of ways that international intervention can make things worse, and one of them is that the the intervening party has its own interests, they care too much? The intervening power in this case was France. The intervention was called Operation Turquoise, and although there's some controversy, and again, it depends on who you ask, basically, the French intervened on the wrong side, They intervened on behalf of the beleaguered uh, Hutu-dominated government that was, at this point, controlled by the guys who were carrying out the genocide. And again, they did this for their own political interest. They wanted to keep the status quo because they were afraid of losing influence in Rwanda, and they had their own political reasons for doing this. But they effectively picked the guys who were carrying out the genocide and set up a humanitarian safe zone in the southern third of the country which effectively became the place that the genocidaires went to go refuel, uh, get you know food resources and then go back out and and kill more people. It's stunning and and the French don't really like to talk about this. So it, they it, they kind of yeah, they're they're a little bit embarrassed. After all, as as uh, as Bernard Kushner once said, uh, the French invented responsibility to protect. So they don't like to remember this little episode at all. Uh, but they did this. And this is one of the things that we should be very careful about when we're like, oh, we need to intervene to stop. Uh, A, do we know what we're doing? But B, are we sure that we trust ourselves to do the right thing? In this case, it's hard to argue that the French did the right thing. Their intentions were a little nebulous, but it was clearly politically motivated to help, even in the face of, of all of the increasing mounting evidence, bodies washing up in rivers on, uh, you know, outside the borders of Rwanda, um, reports of just brutal atrocities from the peacekeeping force coming in, that the French intervened basically on the wrong side in the Rwandan conflict. Now, what does Paul Kagame do about this? Again, not a good man great man he slowly and methodically even in the face of mass killings, a lot of people have wondered why he didn't move more quickly when it was you know his people in theory getting uh getting slaughtered and there's all sorts of theories about that but uh methodically he and the RPF are taking territory and taking the country back and at one point and this is recounted in Dallaire's book, which is uh, called Shake Hands with the Devil, which I really recommend, great book, harrowing, um, about his time in Rwanda. So at one point in the book, he, he says, he he goes up to Kagame, he, he's meeting with Kigami and he says, w- aren't you worried about the fact that the French have taken a third of the country? And they're not on your side in this. Uh, Obviously, he used more diplomatic language than that because he's the head of a peacekeeping force. But but he's basically like, aren't you concerned about what the French are doing? And Kagami turns to him and and just cold-bloodedly says, and, and this is a direct quote, says, quote, no, tell the French that Kigali can handle more body bags than Paris can, end quote. I mean ruthless right but he's right and he was right the french were not willing to sustain high casualty counts over rwanda but the parties to the conflict were and within a few months the as the military situation basically as Kagame had taken control of the rest of the country the french basically packed up and left And at the end of those 100 days, the genocidaries had been chased into what was then Zaire. The French had packed up and left, and Kagame was in control of the country, having ended one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. Now, as a rule, I like to keep my podcasts well under an hour. I try to go for half an hour. This has gone slightly over. So we're going to call it right here, but this is only part one. In part two, everything, I mean... We just witnessed the Rwandan genocide, but in part two, everything goes berserk. The genocide shifts next door, it goes into Zaire, it causes the collapse of Zaire, and what results is what Gerard Prunier called Africa's World War, an absolutely ruinous conflict, the repercussions of which affect many nations in this region to this day. So we're going to talk about all of that and then we're going to wrap up by saying once again sort of why, why it's important, why, why this matters to people outside of the region, what the world can learn from it. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And once again, this is Ambassadors at Large. You can find us online at joegeni.com slash podcast. That's joegen dot slash podcast. Or you can subscribe for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. Part two coming real soon. Bye-bye. This is Joe Genie once again. This is an open call for anyone who listened to this and has some political issue with it or would like a rebuttal or would like to add in their two cents to do so. You can start by contacting me at joegenie.com slash contact. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash contact. But if you would like to be a guest on this podcast, please let me know, and we can arrange for that to happen. I would love to go more in detail to some of the issues that I don't even fully understand or appreciate related to this, whether it's the Arusha Accords or whether it's the the, the history of, of Rwanda. I've never actually been there. I've never been within a thousand miles of it. Probably a couple thousand miles of it. Come to think of it, so the, the you know I, I'm I'm just looking at it as as sort of a, a casual observer who just. Is really interested in it, and I would love to hear uh, more thoughts on the matter. So please get in touch with me if you if you listen to this cast and you you have something to say, and uh, we'll try and make that happen. Thanks so much.